uh, blowing stuff up, if that's your style, all that good stuff. Um, we are continuing our series through the uh, book of Psalm, the first really four, uh, eight Psalms we're going to be going through. And so we're going to continue that today in Psalm 7, so you can open up your Bibles if you wish. It'll be on the screen when we get there to Psalm 7, but you can prepare yourselves and look ahead to Psalm 7. Uh, we, so th- as you notice, we did not dismiss the kids, and so if you are a parent and you're getting anxious at all about rambunctious kids or noises they make, take a big breath and sigh and let it out, because it's all okay. Uh, it's, it's good noise to have. Uh, kids making noise in service is always good. We did that because it's a holiday weekend, as well as we usually do this on the fifth Sunday or every Sunday, and July has five Sundays. So instead of doing it on the end of Sunday of July, we decided, hey, let's do it on a holiday weekend because it just seemed to make sense, uh, because you never know who's going to be here, how many volunteers you can get for some holiday on a holiday weekend. So that's why we did it this day. But relax. Take it easy. I have small kids of my own who make a lot of noise and probably can give any of your kids a run for the money for noise. So it's good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dig into Psalm 7. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time that we can come before you as a family of faith. That we can open up your word and that it can come to life in our hearts and our minds. That we can see you for who you are. How we can understand how you have moved throughout history, how you interacted with people like David, but also how you still do the same things today in our own lives. So Lord, I just pray for us as we read your psalm, as we read your word, as we process through what this means for us and our families and for our world, I just pray that you can show us your truth. Show us the glorious gospel of how you have saved us through Jesus Christ. Show us how we should respond with all of our life. Show us you and you and and the greatness of who you are that defines our whole world. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Being judged. No one likes it. I would say probably, maybe some people like it, but if they do, they're kind of weird, right? No one likes to be judged. Because it brings up insecurities. It makes us feel less than It brings us maybe even bad memories of when people have judged us falsely or accused us falsely. We we don't like it. It hurts. It can can rub us the wrong way. We don't like to be judged. We don't like to be judged so much that we even try slogans to kind of insulate ourselves against being judged. We say, well, nobody's perfect, meaning we're kind of in a way no one has a right to judge me. Or we say, only God can judge me, even if we don't even want God to judge us. We say that kind of insulate us from people judging us or us feeling the, the feelings that come from being judged. But those slogans don't work. We chafe under this. They don't work because we just don't like it. We make excuses to avoid being judged. We, we, don't, uh, we try to justify ourselves and make ourselves bigger than we are or better than we are because we don't like it. We need to realize this because when we come to a psalm like Psalm 7, the prominent theme in the psalm is one where God sits as judge. 
And if we can't recognize and, and understand what we bring to the table before we read the psalm, we'll find ourselves rejecting what the Bible says. We'll find ourselves saying, we don't like this. We chafe under it. We don't really make, it makes us feel uncomfortable when we don't believe it. And so we'll try to excuse it or explain it away rather than just understanding what Psalm 7 is saying, what King David was saying through this psalm. So we need to recognize our own maybe dislike of this topic before we even come to it. Because when we open up Psalm 7, this is what it presents. It presents God as God, meaning has a right to sit on the throne. As we just read in Revelation 21, that's how the world and time ends, is God sitting on his throne, passing his verdict, and that actually is a good thing. As Psalm 7 reminds us, when we chafe and we run from being judged, actually when we think about who is our judge, that is good news. So let's read Psalm 7. Be on the screen. Psalm 7. The subscript, the, the title, you know, it says a Shanag of David when he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benonite. It's funny because a lot of those give context for our understanding of the psalm. This one doesn't because nowhere else in Scripture is recorded who this guy Cush is and what he said to David, but it kind of sets up the scene where he's responding to someone criticizing him, someone bringing accusations against him, and so this is what David says. Oh Lord my God, in you I do take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I repaid my friends with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let me trample, let him trample me, my life, to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked one come to an end and may you establish the righteousness. You who test the minds and the hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, he who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I'll give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. We come to this, and there's some hard images in here of God being judged, and people don't like that. It's funny, you talk to people about God, and if you mention how the Bible speaks about how God is judged, they kind of recoil, or they might object, or they might want to excuse that language and change it. 
But you speak of, speak of him of God as father or God as someone who loves us or God as a friend or a helper or God who provides or God who shows, shows mercy and grace upon us when we need it. There's no complaints. People like that talk. But when you talk about the other side or the other language used throughout Scripture, people kind of get uncomfortable because they realize what that means, that they sit or stand before a God that, they, that is going to judge them. And they innately realize they don't measure up. But we can't ignore this because throughout the Bible, this actually is one of the main themes of the Bible, that God sits as judge. Just think about the stories throughout the Bible and what is God doing? He's actually judging people by their actions and how they respond to him. He judged Adam and Eve when they rebelled and ate of the fruit and he kicked them out of the garden. He judged Cain when he killed his brother. He judged the whole world and sent the flood. He judged Solomon and Gomorrah and said that they needed to be wiped out. He judged Egypt and sent the plagues through Moses. He judged the Israelite nation themselves and said, you wandered away from me. And so he rose up the Assyrians and the Babylonians for the express purpose of punishing his people in judgment. Again and again, we see how God judges his people and judges the world rightly and truly. And that people actually look forward, the prophets came to speak to Israel words of judgment. You better get right with God because he's coming and he's going to judge you, they would say. So again, again, we see that happening. But that's not just an Old Testament idea. It actually goes into the New Testament as well because we see that happening. It's very explicitly said that those who reject Christ will be judged by God. Ananias and Sapphira, they were judged before lying to God, lying to the Holy Spirit. We see again and again people uh, experiencing that punishment, that judgment when they reject who God and who Jesus is. And then all the way towards the end when Jesus is foretold as we see in Revelation, how is he coming again? Is He's coming as the righteous king, the judge who's going to judge all the earth. We see this in Revelation 19 when it says, and I saw the heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and makes war. And then as we saw in Revelation 20, we see the throne of heaven and who sits on that throne but our Christ as he judges everyone. So we can't get away from this theme of judgment. But as we read Psalm 7 and we see how David expresses it, I think we learn how we should view it too. That those of us who know God, who know Christ, don't see it as something to fear, but actually they see it as something that gives them security, something that gives them hope. So we can sum up what we should take from the psalm, and it's this. Call on the coming judge to be your present Savior. Now just a little insight. I try to make little pithy statements for messages so you can remember them. That's not mine. That came from Jerry Packer in his book, Knowing God, on the, on the chapter called God is Judge, which is, after the Bible, I would say, read that book to understand who God is. And so I think it expresses what Psalm 7 is saying so well. That instead of being scared of the coming judge, we actually are called to call out to him, run to him, because he is our present Savior. Call on the coming judge 
to be your present Savior, that the fact is that when we read Psalm 7, we see this, and that's what David does. He's calling out to the one he knows is going to judge. He's calling out to the one he knows who is going to make all the wrongs right. He's calling out to the one he knows has the power, who has the righteousness, who has the the, the wisdom to exact perfect judgment. He's calling out to him. Why? Because he knows he needs them presently to save him in his circumstances, to save him from himself foremost, no matter what is going on in his life. And so we call on the coming judge to be your present Savior. And when we read Psalm 7, we can break it down and see that this idea that God is judged tells us something about God, tells us something about ourselves, and tells us something about how we should relate to our God. The first and probably, I would argue, the most important thing is it tells us about our God. It tells us our God is the perfect judge. And we see it right at the pinnacle kind of of the psalm. In the middle of the psalm, in verse 7, it says, um, it says, uh, you know, the Lord, oh, at verse 8, I should say, the Lord judges the peoples. The Lord is judged. In verse 11, it's, it says, it says the, God is a righteous judge. And in verse 12, it talks about how people should repent or he's going to be judging. He's wetting his sword. And so we get this concept very clear in the psalm that God is the judge. The judge that's coming, the judge that's going to make all the wrongs right, the one who's going to sit in judgments upon the whole world. And when we read this and how it describes this, this, this judge as a righteous judge, a judge who judges in righteousness, who is holy, we see that it's talking about a God who is holy, good, and just. That's why I can speak about this with hope. This is not a crooked judge that can be, can, that's going to pervert justice. This is a judge who is the standard. This is the judge that is going to wipe away tears and make wrongs right. This is the judge that we should hope for because it's bringing what we long for to happen. This is a judge that's going to bring and, and correct the wrongs of this world. Make them right. Which should give us hope. I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've looked at the news lately or looked at our world lately. What, what, what's going on? It just seems like that. It seems like it's getting worse. Maybe we just know more. But this, we look at the world and we long for all this evil, all these wrongdoings, all these things to be made right. We're like, this is not how it should be. And where does our hope lie? Because people can't seem to fix this. They try and they more often than not seem to make it worse. But we long for and we look towards the perfect one who will make it all right. We'll make it perfectly as he has said he would. That he's a good judge which means he can't let sin, can't let wrongdoing and injustice go unpunished. Sometimes when people talk about sin or how we 
don't live up to God's standards, we say, well, he's love, right? That means he should sweep everything under the rug. He should just take care of it. He shouldn't count anymore. But that is asking God, a perfect God, a perfect judge, a perfect holy one, to actually pervert who he is. That's actually asking him to be on the side of injustice. It's asking God to be like the corrupt judges who could take a bribe and change their opinion. No, this is a perfect judge who has a standard, his standard, that's the perfect standard, and he's going to bring it about exactly perfectly as he said he would. And that's actually a good thing, even if it can make us uncomfortable. We reject that because so often we like to view ourselves more as the person who was offended and play down all those times when we are the offender. Play down all those times when we are the ones who have hurt people. Fundamentally play down all those times when we have done offense to our righteous God. So that makes us uncomfortable to realize that God is a good judge that demands justice be done. And we realize what that means, that someone has to pay. But he's the good judge. And the fact that someone has to pay, play, pay, sets up the very foundation of the greatest news there is ever in the world. It sets up the gospel. That our righteous God, the King of heaven and earth, who is the standard and defines everything that is, who divides right and wrong, when he looks upon us, we are found wanting. We can admit that. We are sinners from an unclean people with unclean lips who don't do unclean things. We can't get it right. We mess up. We hurt people. We don't follow God like we should. And we stand before a holy judge. And where is our hope? And we feel that here when it says God is going to judge. And we have to cry out, God, you're going to judge me, and I can't stand on my own merit. You're going to judge me, and I need something else. And he replies with his son. And so it sets up the most glorious news ever that yes, we stand before the perfect judge, but we don't stand. Us who know Christ don't stand on our own merits. We stand in the blood, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because that's how it leads into that good news. But it, we can't do away with this good judge, this holy, perfect judge. It also speaks to the fact that God has the authority. He is the one who rightly can judge. He created all things, all things were created for him and through him and for him. And so he can rightly stand and judge the world. You know, it's funny, you see it on TV, maybe you've even said it, when your kid is misbehaving and you lose your maybe cool and you say, hey, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it. That's probably not the right parenting advice to go with, but we probably all felt that, right? But God actually can say that truly and perfectly because he did. He gave us life, he has authority over it. And he has grace and mercy, and so we trust that he's not just going to take us out of life. But God has the ultimate authority over us and can judge us perfectly. He's also the standard, as I said before, he's the standard by which we judge right and wrong. 
It's funny, if you go and talk to the world, people you know, maybe coworkers and neighbors, and you talk about life, and they'll say, well, how, can, how do you get to say that is wrong or this is right? And, they, and you, you can always get to some place where they're going to say something's wrong or right, and it all comes back down to, by what standard are you judging this thing, right or wrong? And we all have a standard, and we see through the Bible, and we see through knowing who God is, that He is the standard. He is the only one who is good enough, perfect enough, pure enough, has the authority, has the power to enact perfect judgment and do it perfectly. Has the wisdom who sees all wrongs and sees all rights and knows what's the right way to do, that in God's judgment there is no innocent person who will be judged unjustly. By God's wisdom, the perfect outcome that he has set for in his plan will come about because this is who he is. He is God. And finally, this is a future hope that we long for this justice. It's a future hope that we long for our God to be who he is and goodness to come through his work and his judgment. We, I, we mentioned how Revelation, the end of the Bible, ends with this kind of theme of God judging the world, and you have to think about that context of Revelation. Here was a church that's persecuted, a church that was losing their believers to martyrs' death who don't know what's going to happen, and what is the hope that God gives them? Gives them? I am coming back soon, and I will sit and reign as judge. This is the future hope that all those wrongs will be made right, that injustices will be found to actually meet their justice as it's supposed to be. And we hope in that future. We long for that future. It gives us a hope to actually call on the coming judge to be our present Savior because we know who He is and how He will save us. So this is what it tells us about God in Psalm 7, that He is judge. But it also tells us about ourselves. Because it presents these two realities as a little bit of tension. tension. It presents this, this fact that we need to be innocent before our righteous judge. We see how David talks about how he wants God to judge him for, because of his innocence in verses <clears throat> um, 8 and 9. is He's talking about this idea that he, he's, he's standing innocent. He wants God to judge him according to his righteousness. And David's talking on this specific situation, most likely the context here is that people were accusing David of going back on his promise not to, uh, take, uh, to kill Saul and his family. And so they're saying, hey, you stand in wrongdoing. And he's saying, no, I'm innocent of that. I'm innocent of doing that. And so he says, hey, God, you can judge me according to my innocence and my righteousness in this situation. But it's funny because David can't say that about his whole life. For we know how David went. We know what happened with David. We know that David is a murderer, that he's an adulterer, that he was a lazy king, that he did not do the things that were right to do. And so he would stand, he can't say that about his life. He stands before the perfect judge, and he's not innocent. And the same is true for every single one of us. That on our own, when we stand before the perfect judge, we are not innocent. <laughs> I don't think there's a person in here who has a shield gall to tell God, hey, judge me according to my righteousness. I, I don't, because I know how lacking I am. But the fact of the matter is that it sets up this tension that we need to be innocent 
but we're not. And so it brings that, the fact that we need to repent. In verse 12 it says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. That people, all of humanity, need to repent and admit how they've gone wrong and come back to their God. And they need to do that, otherwise judgment is coming. You'll stand before our righteous God and be judged. And so there's that tension there. That David has experienced that tension, but he knows the promise of God. He knows the promise of God to love him and take care of him and provide for him. And so he leans on what he knows of God to be that provider, to be that person who gives grace and mercy. And so he leans on God and trusts in God and that promise. And we should be the same way, that when we know we can't stand before God on our own because we are guilty, we don't run away from God. We actually lean into God because we know who he is and we know how he loves us. And where David just knew the promise of God, we know the name of that promise of God, which is Jesus Christ, who God loves us in spite of ourselves, and he sent his son to live perfectly for us, to fulfill the law, to die in our place, so that our sins could be put on him, and that we could have his righteousness. And so now we stand before God, and we can say, yes, judge me towards, judge me according to the righteousness, not of my own, but that of what I have in Christ. So that when I stand before the judgment seat, it's not a place of of being scared, of fear, of trembling. It's standing before God righteous in Christ, knowing that when Christ welcomes us home, whether when he comes or when we die, when he welcomes them home, we'll stand before God and Christ himself will say, they are one of mine. They are forgiven. They are loved. I know them by name and let's bring them in and we'll be ushered into the throne room to praise God. That is this tension set up that we need to be innocent, but on our own, we're not. And so we need to repent knowing that great promise that we have in Christ that we can repent and be accepted. Which leads right into what this tells us about how we relate to God, a God who is judge. We first need to acknowledge and admit this is an earth-shattering thought. And when we come to God being judged, how in the normal way we want to operate in this world, in the normal way we probably breathe in of society, we want to say God is love and is focus on that. And so when we start talking about how God will actually judge us, it's earth-shattering. It kind of breaks the, the, the views we might normally operate day by day, and it should, because it makes us reflect and ponder for a second What will happen when we stand before our holy judge? How will we measure up and realize it's not about how we measure up, but it's how and who we know in Jesus Christ? But it means that people are now going to be separated into two categories, those who stand on their own merit and will be found wanting, and those who stand in Christ, professing Him as their Savior and Lord, and will be found to be God's people. It's earth I don't even think that. But if you know Christ, it becomes a little bit more less earth-shattering because you hope in that being in Christ and how God will view you through Jesus Christ. Which means that now when we stand before the throne or we think about having to do that, it means that we run to God as our refuge. 
as our safety, as our security, which is what, how David starts off this whole psalm. He knows who God is. He knows he's going to be reigning supreme over the whole cosmos. And so what is his natural reaction? I'm running to you, for you are the only place of safety. You are the only refuge in an ever-changing world. You don't change. You are true, and you love me, and so I run to you and hope in you. That we, we seek refuge in God, who's described as a shield, we seek refuge in a God who is going to take care of how we've been wronged. Actually, this idea that we run to refuge in God is so big and it infects all of our life that we actually can, we can lay down the offenses that people have done against us and allow forgiveness to reign. Why? Because we know God is going to take care of it. That we no longer have to seek our own justice. We don't just seek refuge in God. We actually give thanks to God for being who He is. It talks about that. He talks about how I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness, that when we see who God is, His holiness, His right standard, His right standing before Himself, when we see the purity of who God is, it naturally makes us want to give thanks to Him for being that bedrock on which our whole world and cosmos stands. And so we give thanks to Him and praise Him for that. We thank Him, we praise Him for who He is. Then we make sure that we continually repent of how we go astray and run back to Christ to see Him as the one who takes care of us, the one on which we stand, so that when we can stand before this holy judge, we'll stand in Him and be taken care of. Call on the coming judge to be your present Savior. There's a hope in the coming judge and there's hope in our Savior. The hope in the coming judge is the fact that life is not meaningless and what goes on here just does not keep on going without any um, final um, restitution or completion. The judge is going to bring about what is right, what is good, and we trust in him. And then our hope in the Savior is the fact that when we realize we can't measure up to our ju- the judge, we rest in our Savior. I'll just leave you with, I'll finish with the words from J.I. Packer. When he outlines just what this means for humanity, he says this, as judge, talking about God, he is the law. But as Savior, He is the gospel. Run from Him now, and you will meet Him as judged then and without hope. Seek Him now, and you will find Him, and you will then discover that you are looking forward to that future meeting with joy, knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we come to Psalm 7 and we see the fact that God judges, it's a call for all of us. Know who our Savior is and run to him, so that when you stand before him, it will be a time of joy rather than a time of fear. Call on the coming judge to be your present Savior. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for this word that we can read it and struggle with it and, and process through what it means to be yours, what it means to be in Christ, saved through Christ's sacrifice. 
So Lord, I just pray that you continue to bring that to our minds, that we can understand it, we can process it, we can grow in it, that we can rejoice in the fact that you love us to the extent that you are the, still the perfect judge, but yet you provide satisfaction for your justice in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we can realize uh, this is being a call to run back and back to Christ again and again. A call to those people who do not know you to run to Christ and experience the security and the safety and the comfort and the peace that come, in, come from knowing you as your, our Savior. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.